0: It was terrorizing. I had never experienced anything like that. I'll tell you, Nathan, when the phone rang, I was scared to death. I couldn't check my email. I couldn't go to my grandchildren's soccer games. I did not understand what was going on and I couldn't get out of my own skin.
1: Welcome to the Renovare Podcast, a place for honest conversations about interactive life with God. I'm Nathan Foster, and my guest today is Professor of Philosophy at Talbot School of Theology, J.P. Moreland. J.P.'s written a number of books, and today we're looking at his work titled Finding Quiet, My Story of Overcoming Anxiety and the Practices that Brought Peace. I talked with J.P. over a video call from his office in California. J.P., I'm really interested to know how a philosophy professor ends up writing a book on anxiety and depression
0: well Nathan that's a good question Um, I approach philosophy as an attempt to learn how to live a wise and flourishing life that honors Christ. So to me, philosophy is a part of uh, my pilgrimage. (laughs) And uh, I also believe that emotional health and uh, uh, non-addictive power over one's will with the Spirit's help are important. So uh, I was born with uh, a problem with anxiety, which we can talk about if you'd like, but to make a long story short now, that's what led me into wanting to continue to develop my emotional health and spiritual health.
1: Would you be willing to share a little of your personal story?
0: I'd love to. I was born in, south of Kansas City, Missouri, and I was born with a genetic predisposition towards anxiety from my mom's side of the house. And so... As I was a little boy, uh, I also observed her worry and be anxious a lot. So by the time I got out of high school, I was well-taught and predisposed to being an anxious person. Um, I never had a huge problem with that until 2003, and I had an unbelievably stressful year at the university. The evening school was out. I had started having panic attacks. And I had a, what, what I could call a nervous breakdown that lasted seven months. And I got on medications, got into good Christian therapy, and began to practice some things I'd learned from Dallas Willard. After about a seven-month time, I got better. But then 10 years later, it happened again uh, for five months. And so I really devoted myself to learning about anxiety and coming up with a list of practices that would help me. And so after two nervous breakdowns in 2003 and 2013, I, I really wanted to pull out all the stops and to see if I could work with the spirit more thoughtfully to grow out of this as best I could.
1: You really did well in in terms of your homework. Uh, I mean, you, you set it up of, you know, I'm not a psychiatrist, psychologist, um, uh, but as a, I'm, I'm a clinical social worker, as a clinical social worker, you nailed it.
0: Well, thank you. I I read everything in sight. And I had a clinical psychologist who read the manuscript. He loved it and thought it was sound. So that was encouraging.
1: (laughs) Right. No, good. Yeah. The other thing you do that I found really helpful is that you help address a lot of concerns that Christians might have about mental health or medication or self-compassion. How has that gone? Have you found that to be well-received, or have you gotten pushback from that?
0: Um, Fairly well-received. I did get some pushback. I was actually preaching at a church, and I talked about uh, the importance of medication for, for those who need it. And uh, I was uh, not allowed to speak the Second Service and never was invited back. And they uh, were pretty <laughs> upset with me. But that's okay. I wrote this in the book by claiming that the Bible itself emphasizes the importance of, of non-biblical knowledge. And so the bottom line, Nathan, is that I hold to the authority of Scripture. And if something in psychology or whatever it might be contradicts the Bible, then I then I don't accept it. But if the Bible doesn't speak about it, um, you know, like it doesn't tell me how to get to Chicago, well, then I'm free to follow the evidence wherever it goes if it seems wise and prudent. And so psychology and psychiatry have a tremendous amount to offer us in our tool bag as long as, you know, the therapist isn't telling you to become— you know, uh, the best adulterer in town, you know, that might help you work through your identity issues. Well, sorry, (laughs) I think it worked for me.
1: (laughs) I think you did quite well for people who are, you know, have some of these challenges. Um, it, it, It was, you built a compelling case for it. One of the pieces that I found really helpful in the book is you You continue to go back to all these practices and very practical things that have worked for you, um, yet leaving it open for, you know, not give, being totally prescriptive for people. Uh, I'm curious to hear a little about your journey with contemplative prayer and how that has helped you with anxiety.
0: Oh, it, it's been utterly life-changing. Uh, I did it again this morning. I uh... Um, One of the things I have needed to learn how to do was to attach to God. And of course, petitionary prayer and other uh, confession are important, but I'm zeroing in on a certain form of prayer that has opened me up to attaching and connecting and experiencing the presence of God. With more intensity than I had before. Now sometimes I don't experience anything when I practice it, and that's okay. But 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 it has drawn me closer to the Lord. And so contemplative prayer, as I see it, uh, has a lot of different ways of doing it. I lay out a series of steps in the book, but the bottom line for me was finding a way to sit in the same place every morning and be quiet, and and to learn how to focus my attention. By, by the use of some repetitive phrase, uh, I love uh, peace I leave with you, or I just love to say the name Jesus, I love to say that name, <laughs> or, or it might be something I receive you or something of that sort. And what that does is it focuses me away from distraction or brings me back, and I want to try to get in a position of of receptivity, where I'm open to being uh, guided or, or connected to, and uh, I do try to express, sometimes non-verbally, by just letting my emotion out, uh, my love for for, for Jesus and, um, and receive his healing if I need it. So it, it has been one of the three or four of the most fundamental things, Nathan, that has uh, changed my life. And that's such a cheap phrase because we can say that, but I really mean it after I began to engage in a series of practices, I I am a very different person now than I was five years ago.
1: Could you say a little about the the four-step solution process?
0: Well, yeah, I sure would. I'd love to. Uh, Before I do, let me just back up. One of the things, Nathan, that I learned that is foundational in all my research is that anxiety and depression, but I'll just use anxiety for brevity anxiety is largely a learned habit okay uh not entirely because i have a predisposition towards it which is purely biological and there can be traumatic events that cause it but by and large anxiety is a learned habit that can be unlearned by practicing alternative habit forming practices to replace the grooves in the members of my body, my brain, and heart, muscle, nervous system, with a an automatic triggering of being half full instead of half empty, of peace and joy instead of fear. And so the four-step solution is one way of, of dealing with uh, the, the kinds of negative self-talk that we're habituated to, that we're not even aware we're doing it. It's such a habit. And yet... It tears us down and it makes us afraid and depressed. And the four-step solution was actually first uh generated by a Christian psychiatrist who's a professor at UCLA, Jeffrey Schwartz. But as he says in his book, it's thoroughly biblical, and he's writing to secular people, but if the steps are just flat on. But so so what this is is a way of retraining your self-talk away from being the negative kind of thing towards positive and life-affirming and hopeful self-talk. And so it's four steps. The first step is that you invite the Spirit, according to Psalm 139, to search you and help you notice when you're doing this, because a lot of it just goes by you. So if you spot that you're saying to yourself, oh my gosh, it, 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 I'm just worried that if this happens, it's going to be a disaster. So, you're what ifing, let's say. Uh, you say, wait a minute, wait a minute. I recognize this. It's nothing but a bad habit I'm in. It has nothing to do with what's likely to happen or not likely to happen. So, this is a bad habit. Secondly, step two uh, in the book, I have 10 tri- typical thought distorters. And uh, one of them is catastrophizing, especially about the future. That was my favorite one. <laughs> and so I would, <laughs> uh, if I had something, uh, I was thinking about the future, what if this happens? Then I just blow it up like it would be horrible. And I spent all my time trying to make sure all these things that could happen wouldn't hurt me. Well, boy, that was a waste of energy, but I couldn't stop it. But so this helped me. And so the step two is you label it. This is catastrophizing. I know what this is. Now, Nathan, they've shown in medical research that if a patient can even be given the name of what's causing them pain, they can tolerate much more pain than they could without having a name for it. And so steps one and two allow you to take the power out of this by naming it, by spotting it, and naming it step three is key and that's uh refocusing and that's where you turn your mind away from it you say hold on i'm gonna i may get back to you later but not now and you go to something that gets you into what's called flow and that's what is when you're so wrapped up in something you kind of lose track of time and it could be something as simple as playing solitaire uh, checking, a, a, you know, like I'm a, I'm a sports fan, and checking a certain team's website. It could be reading a novel or watching a show, or it could be listening to pray, praise music and uh, reading through the song, whatever it is. But it, it doesn't have to be spiritual, but the key is that it's got to be something that will help you take your mind off of this and get wrapped up in a crossword puzzle or reading the psalms. Okay. Now, when I first started doing this, it might take me 20 minutes. Uh, now it takes me 30 seconds. I mean, because I've done it for five years. And then the step four is after you've been caught up in something long enough to where this, this the power of this uh, self-talk isn't there any longer, it'll come back you know, in the next day, but not now, then you can go back to it and you can evaluate how you did in handling it. And so uh, the key is being able to catch it and label it. And I've got 10 categories that people could use uh, in, in the book, Finding Quiet, that would, might help them. And then engaging in flow. And, and what this has done is that after two to three months, typically, of doing this daily, uh, you become those grooves that are automatically triggering anxiety because these thoughts pop up are replaced with triggers that automatically cause feelings of joy and peace. And this is no kidding. I no longer think about the future. I live in the day. I, at the beginning of the week, I make sure my schedule, I, you know, if I have to do something Monday to get prepared for Friday, I'll do it. Fine. I get that. But in terms of living in the future and thinking about it, I really don't. But it took me practicing this four-step solution failing at it miserably for the first four weeks in fact it wasn't doing me a a darn bit of good uh, because (laughs) whenever you're learning some new practice like tennis or whatever you're not any good at it until you've practiced it enough well guess what eventually it became second nature and so i don't i don't deal with negative triggering self-talk anymore because I've rehabituated myself and I have other issues, but that one I've been able to thank God with the spirits aiding me to to get rid of that fleshly part of me and replace it.
1: I'm curious to hear a little about how your friendship with Dallas informed your writing.
0: Well, I was privileged to have Dallas as my main professor at SC and my dissertation supervisor. And when I graduated uh, if I could just be honest, he he and Jane sort of adopted me and Hope, my wife, as sort of I don't know, godchildren or whatever it might be. <laughs> and so we we spent time together. We uh, and I I knew him well, and I graduated from SC in '85, and so up until uh, 2013, we remained very close. And I think part of it was just realizing, Nathan, that it is actually possible to make tremendous progress in this journey. Because when I looked at him, and I heard about his childhood, which was extremely painful in a lot of ways, and yet here was a person, forgive me, but in, in my experience was the closest thing to Jesus I'd ever met in my life, and who was naturally that way. There was not an era put on about that guy at all, um, I thought, hey, guess what? You could make progress, <laughs> <laughs> and so I was moved about that. And, and then I began to read, and we talk about some of the things. But if you listen to his tapes and, and read his work, you'll get you'll get it. But I want I want our listeners to know that he really lived this. This wasn't things he just wrote about, and it was that attractiveness of his heart and his life. That drew me in to to motivate me to dive in, and learn a new area of the Christian life that I had not been taught before. And boy, it was uh, it's not the whole of the Christian life, of course. Uh, life of the mind is important, and I believe that the supernatural is important too, and seeing answers to prayer and so on. But boy, that's that's the story.
1: It really reads like formation work applied to mental health challenges.
0: Hello. I mean, absolutely. Absolutely.
1: (laughs) JP, I'm curious, what was it like to crash for all those months?
0: It was terrorizing. I had never experienced anything like that. I was in a fetal position for a month on the couch. I had a sabbatical. And so I I I didn't have to teach, but I'll tell you, Nathan, when the phone rang, I was scared to death. I couldn't check my email. I couldn't go to my grandchildren's soccer games. I did not understand what was going on, and I couldn't get out of my own skin, because I, I would wake up in the morning, and it wasn't long, until this electrical activity started in my chest area, and sometimes it was like a drill, other times it was more diffused, but it it occurred largely in my chest area, and I tried relaxation exercises and other things, and I just couldn't seem to escape from it. Now, I have to admit, I was a novice in both understanding this and knowing kind of how to approach it. What I learned quickly was that my typical approach to the Christian life uh, was not adequate to To deal with this, and I, I did need some of the Dallasite uh, Dallasian <laughs> insights applied to the concept of anxiety being a formed habit, and uh, the use of repetitive practices to to disingrove those brain structures and to regroove them with healthy triggers. So all that was helpful, but I I, I felt like. I felt like I was letting people down. I had to deal with that. I I I just I couldn't be around my grandchildren. It was so painful and um I had some good friends though. Uh that want, some on the faculty and in the church that just loved me to death. And uh they just hey man, we're in this together, we, you know our time's going to come and we've had broad, so let's just you be who you are. And I had to call this one guy probably once a day and, and ask him if he thought I was crazy. And and because uh, I was worried about getting fired, which was irrational. And he'd say, no, you're not crazy. And let me walk through you, this with you. Here's why. And I I mean, I must have called him 70 times. And he was there. He never got, he may have gotten tired of it, but didn't tell me that. <laughs> <laughs> and if you have people that are willing to be supportive uh partly because i think i've been supportive of the, there's been a mutuality there uh that's a huge uh, a part of the help you need from your social structure are you healed yeah uh well that's always a dangerous thing to say but i haven't come close to having even mild anxiety for five or six years. And it's been eight years since the the breakdown I had. So, you know, I went the fall in the summer of 2015 for the next two and a half years, I went through eight surgeries. I had three different kinds of cancer operations. One was uh, life-threatening for sure. I had a pacemaker put in, and I had some other surgeries. I had chemo and two rounds of radiation. I'm telling you, I went through that whole time, and I was just so filled with joy (laughs) and peace, and I had no concern about it. And my wife and my two married daughters, they'd look at me and say, Dad, what is wrong with you? Who are you? (laughs) You you should be flipping out now, you know? And and I just, it was, I'm honestly saying, I was at peace. And... I was working and praying. I wasn't even paying attention to it. I just wasn't worried about it. That's because I was reaping what I had sowed positively for years in these practices. And I'm here to say they worked. (laughs) They actually reformed my character to where the natural thing for me to do was to respond in a trusting manner. And, And I think this is why people are disappointed with verses that, you know, cast your anxiety and the Lord will care for you, or and the peace of Christ, which surpasses understanding, will guard your hearts and minds. And what I take those as, what, as not so much promises, but as uh, ideals that you strive to achieve through practices and through praying through things. And after a while, those texts actually become effective because you have developed the habituation that makes them a part of what you've now become instead of being a worry ward all the time and then trying to slap a verse on it to fix it. <laughs> Which isn't, it, it's the problem, it's not the verse, it's that we don't approach them the right way. At least that's my take on it.
1: Talk a little bit about how important um, uh, biblical passages were for you or have been for you through this process.
0: Oh, they—they've been absolutely huge. In fact, um, uh, in in Finding Quiet, the first appendix is a list of about I'm going to say twenty verses that are just solid gold. And Dallas told me a long time ago. He said, uh, "You know, JP." He said, "As are more important than getting in the Word and reading it is is to commit a handful of verses to memory." That are your very very they and you love them. They just do something for you, and make those the rails on which you run your life. Keep returning to those. Now read the word in addition. But so what I did is I committed a, a set of verses, anywhere from you know one verse to five or six. The uh, twenty third Psalm, for example, or you know trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your understanding. Uh, and uh, as I began contemplative prayer, I would begin to quietly pray through a few of those and just orient myself to my contemplative prayer session with these verses. If something came to me that was a a bit of a threat, and I I would naturally go towards kind of anxiety, I'd say, wait, hold, just a minute, just a minute. Let's just breathe. Let's just relax your body and calm down. Now remember don't be anxious about th- then I'd pray one or two of those and boy they just became treasures and still are but not all verses are equally helpful to each one of us so you have to pick a list and you don't have to memorize 50 verses just pick a list of 4 or 5 uh and I've got some great ones in the in the in the first appendix uh of that book if you need help on this but boy there's some you know, they're ones you love, and uh, you just love to think about them and, and just to pray them through. And what I did, one more thing, is I would try, as best I knew how, to express them emotionally to God rather than just cognitively reciting them. And that takes practice. But uh, it, it was a huge thing to me to have the Word uh, there for me when I needed it.
1: What would you say to someone listening who's really struggling with anxiety and maybe has some uh, self-condemnation or shame around that? Would you
0: have a word for them? yeah, yeah. First, the shame and condemnation. Remember, Peter says that there are your brothers and sisters all over the world that are undergoing the same things. And you're not alone. Uh, This is an epidemic. So don't feel like you're unusual. And in fact, I have Talbot professor fact, uh, colleagues that are a lot of them are on meds. Uh, they've had the same problem. So number one, remember you're not alone in this, and there's nothing bizarre about you. Number two, I would immediately, uh, uh, if you're if this is kind of a hard thing to handle, why not go to a Christian therapist and start getting some counseling. And also I would go to a Christian psychiatrist if I'd rather go to a psychiatrist, uh, not not necessarily a Christian psychiatrist, I'm sorry, because psychiatry is more medicine, so your theology doesn't enter into prescribing meds. But go to a psychiatrist rather than a GP because they know more about it and consider getting a little help with meds until you get over the hump. Uh, And then the other thing is that I would uh, begin to share what I'm experiencing with other people that I trust, so that I have a place to share it and get it off my chest, and then be- begin some of these very simple practices that I mention in the book. So, d- guilt and shame is not needed. Uh, there's no, there's no room for that. I have a weird view on this, but I don't think Christians should ever feel guilt or shame. Because Romans 1, 18, 8, one says that there's no condemnation and Colossians says that what we've done was nailed, our certificate of debt was nailed on the cross. Now, if those are true, we still do things that are objectively shameful and objectively wrong. But those have been provided for, so instead of me feeling guilty or shameful, that There's no longer any room for that in the Christian life, but I should feel something else, and that's what I call godly sorrow. Now, the difference is that shame and guilt is self-oriented and it's self-condemnatory, and it puts me down. Godly sorrow is a form of sadness uh, that I have not made more progress in the Christian life than I thought, or that I, I, I hurt so-and-so again. For the twentieth time or whatever, and I, I feel a sadness about it, but what it does is it draws me toward the Lord, where I can acknowledge it and, and agree with him that this 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 was hurtful to that person, but I also know that you don't condemn me, but I am sad, and I need your your affection and love and, and healing, so it 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 moves me towards the Lord and it creates a hunger to conform to the way he is and continue the journey rather than beating myself up so if you have anxiety and you're beating yourself up forget it uh you know uh, you're you're beating you know 40 million americans up at the same time i don't want to get beat up again leave me alone <laughs> uh but instead you might want to if it's outside of your control and you got a genetic inheritance then you you know you just get work at it but if if you feel a sadness come to the lord and say hey i feel i feel sad because i did such and such that may have triggered this and uh, but i know that i don't need to i need to self nurture right now and you would do the same thing to me lord and i can i can love and be kind to myself mm-hmm. and i that's much better
1: Godly sorrow. That's a good phrase. Yeah, I love it. How about for folks who, you know, friends and family, spouses are struggling with anxiety? Is there a word you might have for the best way they can love each other through this?
0: Yes. The first thing is to be present to your loved one and uh, give them opportunities to share and talk and Without you initially trying to fix it or just just be there, be a presence and listen, even if you've heard it every day for 20 days now. So so the the more you can be present and accepting and listening, that's going to give a feeling of support. And then the next thing I would say would be careful to preserve your own boundaries, because, I mean, you can't you're going to need time away. And you just have to communicate that to your loved one. i I just need I need a little refreshment. So I'm gonna go, I don't know, shopping or to a movie or I'll, I'm I'm gonna go hang out with some of my friends at church, but I'll be back. But you also have to keep yourself from going down or you're not gonna be any good to anybody. That's what I would suggest.
1: Yeah. How how'd your wife how was this for her?
0: Well, it was very she was just uh she was worried for me, because she'd never seen me like that, and and yet you have to understand, she's an extraordinarily gracious, mercy giving person. So she was just there, and uh, very much there for me, and listened to me, and uh, supported me, and I, I I didn't feel any condemnation on her part. I could I could feel her worry sometimes but I understand that. But uh, she was very helpful.
1: Well, JP, it's so good to talk with you and and thank you for writing this and and sharing your story.
0: Oh, you're so welcome, Nathan. God bless you, my brother.
1: Again, that was JP Moreland talking about his book titled Finding Quiet, my story of overcoming anxiety and the practices that brought peace. You can head over to the Renovare website to access the show notes from today's episode. And there you'll also find the latest release of our new podcast titled Friends in Formation. I'm Nathan Foster, and you've been listening to the Renovare Podcast, a work made possible by the generosity of donors like you. You can support Renovare and this podcast with a tax-deductible gift at renovare.org slash donate. Renovare is a Christian ecumenical renewal effort offering resources and experiences to help people become more like Jesus. You can find articles and other resources at our website, renovare.org. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcast. This podcast is produced by Brian Morricon, who also wrote the opening song titled Be Kind. Until next time, be well, friends, be well.